Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'm going to be joined by Zarin Sidhu, and we're going to talk about Facebook and Instagram ad strategy. And by the way, as of the day that I am recording this, which is earlier than when this episode airs, but I'm recording this on August the 11th, 2022. Today is our 10-year anniversary. Actually, it's one day after our 10-year anniversary. It was August 10th, 2012, when we published our very first episode, episode number one with Mari Smith. As of today, we've had nearly 33 million downloads to this show. And if you've been a listener for longer than even just a couple of months, if you've been with us from the very beginning, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to the show. And for those of you that are new, thank you so much. I would love to know how this show has impacted you, your life, your business. Would you do me a favor and reach out to me? I am at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. And by the way, if you're a new listener to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future episodes. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Zarin Sidhu. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Zarin Sidhu. If you don't know who he is, he's a paid social expert and VP of paid social activation for North America at Brain Labs. His YouTube channel is called Market and Hustle, and his Facebook ads course is called Hyper Growth Ads. Zarin, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm super excited that you're here. Today, Zarin and I are going to explore Facebook and Instagram ad strategy. 
But before we go there, I want to hear a little bit of your backstory. How the heck did you get into social advertising? Start wherever you want to start. That's a funny story because my path never came from digital marketing. I never wanted to be a digital marketer. In fact, what I wanted to do when I was in college was be a professional breakdancer, which is something that I was doing for fun, you know, through high school. And at some point when I was in college, I realized that I can get paid for this. And at this time, I was studying to be an accountant. I worked at a bank. Like I had this very clear cut uh, vision for my future. And I was just doing this on the side. And once I realized I could make a buck off of breakdancing, doing these shows, and that these corporations were willing to pay a lot of money, I then decided it was in my best interest to pivot my accounting trajectory into marketing. And that's when my college path went from black and white to color and everything started to become more interesting because I could learn these concepts and apply them. Lucky for me at the time, this is around. Wait, we got, we got to talk about the breakdancing stuff because you, you were involved with some pretty big stuff when you were breakdancing. You were like really talented. So share a little bit about that journey. I think people would find that fascinating. Yeah, it's something I, I started doing in high school. And I'm going to be honest, I started doing it because I realized I can get attention from girls. <laughs> and when, when you're, I was, I was, I wasn't a nerdy kid in high school, but I, I wasn't a cool kid either. And I feel like that kind of helped me sort of find my identity, which I, I feel like a lot of people in high school are trying to figure that out. When I went to college, we first started doing these, like, I don't know, just like random kind of like birthday parties and, and private events. But then it escalated to like corporate companies wanting to use us to do these performances at their events, especially like these three-day conferences where they're trying to get everybody excited. And at the beginning of the conference, they always want to have some kind of form of entertainment to like wake people up because it's like early in the morning. So yeah, once we realized, oh, wow, there's like a demand for this, we were like, how can we play in the space? Uh, this is around 2009, 2010. So one of the things that was very favorable was ranking online wasn't that difficult for this category. Today, maybe it's a little bit different. So being visible online started to help us generate leads for the business. And we had this like very terrible website that a buddy of mine had created. I think I paid him like $300 or something like that at the time. And we were just shocked by following just some basic SEO guidelines from Google that this website was actually able to get us business. So it was following, I think the, the journey into me getting into digital advertising was following this process of like, oh, wow, simple things can be very, very effective online. And if you build upon that, you can drive more demand for your business. That's a really cool story. So tell us a little bit about when did you start your your own business and kind of bring us a little bit more to the present. Like when did you start focusing on Instagram and Facebook? Tell us a little bit more about that. I think the first stage that, you know, like I was at when I first started that, that production company, I mean, it wasn't even a production company at first. It was just like a dance crew was, you know, how can we be visible on Google? But from there, it's there's only so much demand you can capture through search activity. So it was like, well, what else can we do to get people looking for what we're doing, even if they're not actively looking for it? And that's where Instagram and Facebook played a huge role, especially back in 2010, 2011, because their organic engagement rates were so great. And because of the nature of what we were doing, you know, spinning on our heads, flipping around, the video content on the feeds just did so well. So it was kind of a, uh, a very natural progression of, oh, we're doing this cool stuff. Let's just post it online. And that traction that that started to get helped us generate more clients and more leads. So it just felt like, 
all right, well, how can we amplify this further? And by that point, Facebook advertising was already a tool that was available to most advertisers in the US and abroad. So then that's when we started to experiment with that and see how much further that could amplify the demand for our business. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing today with the company that you're working for. Yeah, well, at some point, my, my dreams of becoming a professional breakdancer and raising a family and having a certain lifestyle, I realized that the salary probably wasn't going to get me there. Also, it doesn't help that, you know, if you if you uh, sprain an ankle, you know, you can't you can't work, you can't make money. So I decided to pivot at some point and I, I had built a network of professionals in the entertainment industry that I realized that they didn't really understand how to how to leverage their their social channels and really use it to build an online presence. They had built a business that was quite successful on referrals, sort of, you know, maybe like a, an affiliate uh, affiliate tactics. So I turned to them and I said, hey, you know, I can, I can do this for you, or at least I thought I did at the time. And for about a year after I got out of college, I was just freelancing for these other businesses and, and helping them better define their, their social presence. And then at some point I realized, okay, I'm better than these business owners at doing this, but I felt like I still had a lot to learn. And that's where I turned to the agency world as a source of kind of leveling up my skill set and also taking all the knowledge that these agencies had, had built in terms of processes and frameworks that they were now applying to the digital world. So around 2015, I went to work at Zimmerman Advertising in South Florida which is part of uh, Omnicom Group. And at that point, paid social media managers didn't even exist. A social media manager would do everything. You were doing organic, you were doing influencer programs, and then you were doing a little bit of paid advertising. And I remember while I was there, they had put a role up for a paid social media manager. So then that's when I realized, oh, wow, this, this thing is growing. You know, There was more money piling in, clients were seeing more results. And the systems, the platforms were starting to get more complicated. So that's kind of what kicked me off in that direction. And I realized, you know what? There's a lot of young people walking in at the agency. And some of them have like 5,000, 10,000 followers on their Instagram. And I realized the barrier to entry, like from the perspective of how do I grow my career and what direction should I move on? I was like, paid social is getting more complex. More money's coming in. That means people are going to need more sophisticated digital marketers to really manage these budgets and help these businesses grow. So today, you're that's what you're doing. You're basically helping. Do you have a team or is it just you doing it? So in the current role that I'm in today, I, I oversee the paid social practice for Brain Labs in North America. I work very closely to some of our um, more of the enterprise clients, but the agency does have a pretty sizable team that is hands-on keyboard buying media. I think we have at least 150 team members globally. And then we have a team of what we call social champions, which are subject matter experts that we really dedicate a lot of resources to training and, and up-leveling them so that they can really service their clients to the best possible degree. And the reason I found you is because of your YouTube channel and you're putting out content on a pretty regular basis about Paid acquisition, is that the primary focus of the channel? It is, yeah. And and the channel started back in 2018, about four years ago now, because I realized that I kept having the same conversations with friends and industry colleagues where someone would ask me a question about something. And I'm very passionate about paid media and advertising at large. So I'm willing to, you know, talk to them for like 30 minutes or an hour. But I just realized I kept having the same conversations over and over. And I was just like, why don't I just record 
a video of this and just send it and then just have it. So when people ask me, I'm just going to point them to the video. So that's kind of how the channel started. And then you do enough of these videos and YouTube, people are searching for them. The algorithm picks it up. And I realized, okay, maybe there's something here. Maybe people really do want to understand some of this more complex paid social digital advertising stuff, but through a lens of practicality of like, well, how do you do it? That's awesome. Well, and that's how we discovered you. So there's plenty of marketers listening right now that are all in on Facebook and Instagram, but I would say that the biggest chunk of them are probably doing organic activities on the platform. And they're wondering whether or not they should focus more on paid advertising, paid acquisition. What do you want to say to those that are not sure about whether or not they should put some money behind their activities on Facebook and Instagram? Yeah, I think it's great to have an organic presence. I think that's very important. I think having an organic presence on Facebook and Instagram and some of the other social channels, if they're relevant to the audiences that these businesses are serving, I think it's great because at this point, it's table stakes, right? It's become so easy nowadays to, to make a website or a digital presence. You know, a 15-year-old kid can build a website through Shopify and you just don't know what is an actual real business and what is not. And having organic content is something that can lend a lot of credibility because you can showcase the business, the people, the service. But the reality is that if we if we go back 10 years ago, the amount of organic reach that we were getting back then compared to now, it's like dismal. So if the end outcome is you're going to use this channel to drive an audience that you can engage, that you can then eventually sell a product or a service, it's in the best interest of any advertiser to maximize their reach. And back, I would say maybe 10 years ago, the way that organic and paid social was working was that many brands would build up this organic presence and they would use paid ads to get followers. So it was very cheap to run campaigns to get followers. And then you would organically just post, you know, four or five, 10 times a day to maximize your reach against these audiences. What we're seeing now is that that's not the way that you want to be using paid social, but at a minimum, you do need to be using paid social because there's going to be a, a, a large percentage of the market that your organic content will not be able to, to reach the full users out there. So even if you're a large, even if you have a million followers or 2 million followers, again, your average post is getting under 2% reach at best. So paid social does play a role, not only to make sure that you're maximizing your reach against your existing audience, but that you can go to talk to new prospects out there in the market who might not know who you are, who might be in market for your product or service. They just haven't heard about you. And, and paid amplification is a great tool to get you there. What do you want to say to the people that are like, well, Apple, you know, <laughs> I forget what they call their privacy, you know, thing, but Apple seems to have really made it very difficult for us to do remarketing, retargeting, and all this other privacy stuff that's going on at the browser level. It seems like advertising on Facebook and Instagram isn't going to be as effective as maybe it was before. What do you want to say to those guys? I think it's a valid concern. You know, we, for a very long time, the industry has benefited from very low level of regulation or awareness of how some of these platforms have been using data and the amount of data that Facebook and Instagram has that can power advertising campaigns is to the benefit of advertisers. So losing any percentage of that is going to hurt us, but still their tools are very effective and there's still many, many advertisers that are running 
campaigns at scale across different verticals from D2C brands to B2B to, to B2C players that are seeing tremendous results. And, and there's a reason why a lot of these brands still carve out a good chunk of their budgets to advertise on these platforms. So it still works. Does it work to you know the level that it was before? It's probably not as effective. However, the platforms have invested a ton of resources to try to usher in this new era of how they can be effective for small businesses and large businesses, despite some of the challenges that Apple has put across. So I think it still makes sense for, for advertisers to, to use the platform, even if it's not as powerful as it once was. You pay very close attention with your YouTube channel and the work that you do for your career to the things that Facebook has been signaling to advertisers. And I would love to hear from your perspective, like what is Facebook telling marketers? What do we need to be paying attention to from these signals that are coming from Facebook? One thing that comes to mind is that in, I would say in the last like 12 months, there's been a shift in narrative with how advertisers are running campaigns. The legacy approach was that you're going to create as many audiences as possible and you're going to use a, a technique called horizontal scaling. So you'll build one audience, you'll see how it performs. And once that's doing well, you continue to run that audience. Then you think about the next audience, you build the next. And then what ends up happening is you might have a campaign that might have like 15, 20 different audiences all running at once, some of them overlapping with each other. And one of the things that that Facebook has been saying is like, hey, you need to limit this level of fragmentation and you need to build broader. And again, that makes sense because what's the purpose of having two audiences that, you know, have a 40% or 50% overlap? You're bidding against yourself. You're paying more money. Your audiences might be seeing the ads more times than they need to to convert. So there is some merit in not over complicating your campaigns. However, on the other side, if you oversimplify the way you're building campaigns and you have just, let's just say for sake of argument, just one big broad audience, then the the true benefit of being able to use these tools, you kind of lose, which is the ability to test and learn. So you have to find some kind of middle ground where you're not overcomplicating campaigns, where you're working against the platform, the technology, where you make it hard for the algorithm to exit the learning phase to be able to get those 50 conversions per week. But to the other side that you're not building so simplistic that you can't effectively, you might be getting results, but you're not really taking advantage of opportunities to understand what is and what isn't working to then you know, feed it back into your strategy. So that's one thing that I would say. And the other piece of that too, is that I believe one of the reasons that they've also been leaning into this build broad narrative is because costs have increased, you know, especially we saw a massive increase in 2020 as a result of a lot of businesses going online and on Facebook ads for the first time. And that sort of continued into 2021. And to the point that I think quarter over quarter, like I might get the, the, the year wrong. It was either 2020 versus 2021. We saw like a 67% increase in CPM costs. That's crazy. Just crazy. You know, that alone is crazy. You know, you're paying significantly more because there's more competitors in the auction. But at the same time that this is happening, we have Apple's iOS 14 come in. What that did is it removed a ton of data signals. So before iOS 14, about 80% of the US 
iOS device users, they opted into tracking. They allowed Apple through their uh, advertiser ID to share back information to Facebook. And so it really helped us drive performance. Once they made it an opt-in model where someone has to, when they download the app, they have to say, will I share access? That number went down, I think, under 40%. So we lost about half, like 40 to 50 million data points that we were getting. On the regular, we lost that. So you have now CPMs going up, measurement going down, and then what that ends up doing is your ROAS is cut in half and or your cost per action is doubled. Even though that's not really the case, it's just what might be visible to the advertiser. So those factors have definitely been top of mind for advertisers in the last year. However, some good news from Meta's recent earnings report, they actually told us that their CPM rates were decreased 14% in this past quarter. And actually, we, we were doing an analysis recently at Brain Labs, and we saw that 2022 versus 2021, CPM rates are down. So it is very possible that, you know, now that we're exiting the pandemic, that a lot of these advertisers might have started moving money back to other channels, maybe offline TV, you know, things that they might have been investing in, in the past. And that's reducing the cost of media. So there might be now an opportunity for advertisers that might have been priced out at some moment to say, hey, maybe this is really the time to ramp back up or test Facebook or Instagram ads for the first time. I love this. This is awesome. Now I would love to ask about your strategy. So given all of this information that we've been talking about, the CPMs rose and now they're starting to drop a little bit and all the other things that we talked about, about what Facebook is signaling to us that, hey, we ought to not go super narrow, but not go super broad either. In light of all of this, what is the strategy that you recommend to everyone listening when it comes to their Facebook and Instagram ads? So I think True success on Facebook is, regardless of the vertical or market or geographic area, it boils down to, to two main things. Number one is data signals. The reason that this platform has become so powerful and effective, it's its ability to harness information that users are, are giving to the platform and then allow advertisers to then leverage that information. Now, in order to do that well, you, you need to understand their pixel technology and that mechanism and how it's able to extract that data from your website and then use that information. And one thing that we've recently seen in at Brain Labs in particular, so Meta rolled out their conversions API solution, which allows you to be able to get signals from browsers that might not be, let's say someone's using an ad blocker, for example, a pixel won't be able to get that conversion data and if you don't have that conversion data, well, then now you don't get credit for the sale and then the algorithm loses an opportunity to further optimize. Yeah. And just, just to clarify, that allows publishers to have first party data. So it's not blocked, right? Isn't that how it works? I mean, like, so for example, we're a publisher or our website or whatever, we can add this in. It's a first party cookie or something like that instead of a third party, right? And therefore it's not blocked. Is that generally how it works? Yeah. That's one of the upgrades that Facebook was quick to make was have the option for their pixel to be a first party pixel so that most browsers wouldn't remove it. However, there's still a lot of ad blocking technology that will remove the Facebook pixel. And so one of the things that we're seeing a lot of success with is advertisers who are setting up the conversion API, which basically instead of passing the information through the browser can send it directly from one server to Facebook, from the advertiser server to Facebook. And I'll be honest, it's not the 
the simplest thing to set up if you're new to Facebook ads. However, if you're using like a Shopify or WooCommerce, there's partner integrations where like there's a the platform will literally walk you step by step of what to do and you're just clicking next, yes or no. So it can be pretty simple if you're if you're working with one of those major e-com platforms. But the benefit of it is that because we have more data signals, those advertisers are seeing CPLs as low as 40%, 43 to 47% more efficient because you're capturing more data. So not only can you can you measure it, but now you're feeding it back to the algorithm and the algorithm now can better go find those audiences. So data signals is one key part of it and understanding how that pixel technology works and where there might be opportunity for you to use something more advanced. The other piece of that is really building in service for the algorithm. So kind of going back to this idea of, are you over fragmenting your campaigns or are you oversimplifying things? You wanna have a campaign structure that, that works in service of the algorithm. And the reason that why that's important is because you cannot control Facebook's algorithm. However, your campaign structure is a mechanism for you to have some sense of control. And to give you an example, a best-in-class approach for a Facebook ads campaign, again, regardless of vertical, there might be some nuances, is you want to separate your prospecting efforts. So people who aren't familiar with your business have never seen an ad from you. You want to separate that separate from your retargeting campaigns. Within your prospecting, you want to separate interest targeting from your lookalike targeting. A few reasons why is because from an organizational perspective, when you get into your ads manager, you want to be easily able to understand what is inside of each campaign so that you can look at your metrics on a day-to-day and move quickly. But another reason that's important is because sometimes the audience sizes are so distinct when you're running these campaigns and you're using CBO, campaign budget optimization, which lets you dynamically move money around, you might have an audience, an interest campaign that's 10 million, 20 million, very sizable. And what the algorithm will do sometimes in those situations is move money in that direction, even though that might not give you the best performance. So it's good to separate interest and lookalike campaigns because there's different levels of intent in the same way where retargeting is going to have a completely different level of intent. So at a minimum, using your campaign structure to really separate those types of intent now gives you some levers to control your bids your budgets, and also your creative, which is going to drive a really key part of the performance with any Facebook campaign. I got a couple of clarifying questions on the conversions API. The name sounds like it's sending conversion data and that's all it's sending. Is that a fair assessment? Like, for example, I got a sale, let Facebook know that this person turned into a customer so that maybe I can target people that are more like this customer, or is it actually tracking all sorts of different kind of data points, not just like a e-commerce conversion. Like can it track a page view versus a form fill versus, you know, the different kinds of actions that maybe the regular Facebook pixel might've tracked? Yeah, that's a great question. So when thinking about the Meta's pixel and the conversion API, it's not an or, it's an and. So the pixel is gonna provide every website you wanna tag it with a pixel. The conversion API, it's kind of like something you put on top to capture anything that the pixel can't capture. And the great thing too, is that it can automatically deduplicate events so that if somebody goes to your website and they buy and they were using a browser where they were sharing, you know, they weren't using an ad blocker or or any kind of technology, they weren't clearing cookies, the pixel is going to get that event ID 
And also the conversion API is going to get that event ID. And if they match, it's going to say, okay, this is one single conversion. There is some level of customization with the conversion API that you can control. So for example, if when someone goes to buy from you, they share their name, their email, their phone number, country, whatever, you can actually say, hey, I'm willing to share the customer's first name and their email. And that's what Facebook can use to match. Of course, if you give Facebook more information, their ability to match is going to increase. But there's definitely some uh, businesses or verticals that you know might be more protective if you're dealing with something in banking or maybe pharma. You might not be able comfortable giving a phone number, but maybe you're comfortable giving an email. So there's a lot of customization options and what you can share. But the pixel is basically what you should be using to capture any of that like page view data and any of those other media metrics that aren't the sales, the end sale conversion. I know you already kind of mentioned this, and I don't know if you fully exhausted your answer to this question, but when it comes to prospecting ads versus retargeting ads, is there any other little nuances that we need to talk about maybe that people need to be thinking differently about when it comes to setting up their ads on Facebook and Instagram? Yeah, I think with prospecting, there's this saying my Facebook reps would say before, they'd say when intent is low, creativity needs to be high. And the thinking here is that if someone's been to your website and you know there's some level of interest, at that point, it might just be messages around like reminding them that they left something in cart. The messages can be generally more simple. But when you're prospecting and you don't know if this person actually is looking for what you're trying to sell them, you need the threshold to not just get their attention, but to like hook them in and get them to lean in is a lot higher. So if I was a business and I was thinking about like my budgets around creative uh, and, and sort of my, my social plan in general, I would put a lot more effort and intention into any prospecting creative that I was developing because I know the threshold is going to be a lot harder to, to get their attention. So just so we're clear, when you were talking about the card abandonment, that's more retargeting, not prospecting, right? Right. So to get people in the very, very door in the first place on the prospecting side of things. I mean, like, I'll be honest, like right now, you know, we're running ads for one of our events and we don't have the target audience amongst our media because we have a very small audience that is interested in X and a very large audience that's interested in Y, but we're trying to sell the X, right? So one of the things that we've decided to do is run Facebook and Instagram and Google ads to try to attract that X audience to us. But I think the challenge that we face is we're selling a product. We're not providing a free piece of media. We're not providing a free service, right? So I would imagine the bar is really high with advertising for prospects when you're going directly to a sales page, right? And that's not easy because <laughs> we're not actually looking for prospects. We're looking for customers. You know what I mean? So I don't even know if we would call that prospecting, but I guess arguably it is. Yeah, absolutely. A buddy of mine, David, always has this analogy. It's like, you don't ask someone to marry you on the first date. You kind of build up to it over time. Now, if, you, if you say that to a direct response marketer, they're like, ah, challenge accepted. <laughs> and I think right. that's the role where creative can play a strong role, but also the messaging that that creative has and the synergy that it has with the landing page, it's also very, very important. Whenever I'm thinking about something that's very, like products or services that you know might be more expensive or somebody has to really think about this, um, one of the things that's good to understand is like sources of influence um, and thinking about how you can incorporate that within the creative itself. And a lot of times that might look something as simple as featuring, you know, other industry experts within the creative 
because they are trusted. So it's like, oh, you know, Scott Galloway is somebody I follow religiously. And I remember there was a, a big conference, AdWorld conference, that they had been promoting for years. And I was just like, I, I, I just don't think it's for me. And then I remember seeing an ad with Scott Galloway. And I was like, oh, Scott's going to be there. I was just like, sign me up. So I think when, whenever you're prospecting, the challenge is the more expensive it is, people need to think more. They need more time. It needs a little bit more nurturing. So understanding those sources of influences, and if you can bring it into the creative early on, it just increases their trust and they're more likely to, to take that action earlier than later. I love that. Let's transition into talking a little bit about creating ads, you know, creative for ads. Obviously, Mark Zuckerberg has really put a lot of emphasis on video. You know, we're seeing Instagram, you know, recently getting a lot of pushback, but clearly moving to a feed that is very reels focused, right? And we're starting to see the same thing on Facebook. So talk to me about like creative and what your thoughts are and what your experiences are based on the work that you've done with your clients. What do we need to be thinking about when it comes to creating great ads? Creative is, is very important. I think long-term, that's the most important optimization lever that you have. You know, once you figure out who your audience is and you've kind of done some of the housekeeping, Creative is the one lever, again, you can continue to learn from and you can continue to optimize long-term. Out of the gate, it's just very important. Something I often find that whenever I do audits for clients that we're pitching is that I'll see some campaigns that they'll have like 17 ads and then they'll have one audience that has like one ad. Something that Facebook has told us time and time again, and I've seen in the performances, you, you want a minimum of three to five ads running at any given time because that gives breathing room for the delivery algorithm to figure out what works for who. Another piece of that too is that mixing different formats within one ad set is beneficial because the technology could also understand who are the audiences that are being reached that tend to convert off of a carousel format versus the ones that tend to convert from video. So I think there's this theme of, again, building in service of the algorithm that also kind of steps into the creative aspect where it's like there are some best practices that if you if you always take these into account you can work with the algorithm not against it but more prescriptively i think video is a format that we just continue to see shine because it's it goes back to this old saying like if a picture is worth a thousand words well and what what is a video worth there's so much more you can do with video and we know there's a really great report in the journal of advertising that what they found was that the average frequency that you needed to drive purchase intent for someone on social was around 10 exposures. Wow. So someone needs to see an ad 10 times, you know, over a period of maybe a couple of weeks, over a period of time, they weren't really specific on the time in order to get you to the, to the point that you're like, I, I, I would very likely buy that product. And then what they found within this research was that if your message was emotional based, they can get you to have that same level of purchase intent within two exposures. Really? So it just goes to show that the importance of not just, I think Facebook says creative is like 58% to 60% of all campaign performance. So just think about how effective video can be because you can say so much, you can overcome so many of the buying objections. And then now if you have video that has an emotional lead into it, which I think this is something that a lot of direct response advertisers have finally like caught on to. And I tend to see a lot more of these ads on my feed where they're they're talking through problems from the lens of how can I get 
a visceral reaction from someone. And a lot of times that happens in the first two to three seconds when someone makes a bold claim and says something that you know catches you off guard or they ask you a question that forces you to self-reflect. And I remember when I was at Open Education, which is a direct-to-consumer startup that I worked in at Miami after I left Zimmerman, and we were spending maybe like at least like eight to $10 million a year on Facebook ads. And one of the things that we quickly learned because we did a lot of this testing and iterating was that there was a particular type of ad that would tend to get a lot of results. And it was an ad that was just asking people a question and it had a little emoji. And it was in Spanish because basically what this company did was they were kind of like a Rosetta Stone, but they were teaching English in Latin America as opposed to teaching, you know, learning Spanish in the United States. Right. One of the insights that we had was that a lot of people that learn English in a third world country, and if they don't learn it from a native English speaker from like, let's say America, they might understand the language and they might be able to speak it, but their pronunciation is like a little off. And because of that, they'll feel embarrassed. So we had these ads, which will basically tug at that insecurity of like, no English, but embarrassed to speak it. And these ads would like fly through the shelf. And, and I remember that, you know, we created some kind of structure and internally in meetings, we would call them like, oh, these were like self-reflection ads. And then later on, after more time, you know, working across other clients, I started to realize, oh, wow, this, there's something here. So it's great to see that there's research in the Journal of Advertising that connects the dots of like emotional messaging and creative being very effective. But also what I've seen in my experience as well is that, yeah, when you take that kind of messaging in prospecting, it can be very, very effective. And it's funny because a lot of people think, well, if you're trying to sell somebody something, especially if it's to another business owner, well, business owners are very rational and they're looking at costs and they want you know, to understand what the benefits are, and which is true. That's also important. But initially to hook them in, if they might not even be considering the product or service you're selling them, emotional messaging can be really impactful you could say things to somebody like, hey, you know, are you worried about uh, making payroll this month? Now you got their attention. Now you can talk to them about your payroll software. <laughs> Rational messaging where it really tends to shine is in remarketing because you could tell someone, hey, you have an offer. You can overcome buying objections with those rational messaging, right? I got 30-day return policy as an example. There's a lot of rational points that can be addressed within remarketing. That's also not to say that you can't include benefits of your product or service within your video creative when you're prospecting. Absolutely. You just don't want to lead with it. It could be a part of your messaging and a part of your video, but you always want to lead your prospecting creative from an emotional angle whenever possible. Do you find that, especially on Instagram, since Instagram seems to be moving towards discovering content that's not from people you're following with all these reels that are coming up? And this is likely moving to Facebook as well. Do you think this is going to benefit advertisers as people begin to watch entertaining content that is unfamiliar to them? Is it possible that they're not even going to realize they're seeing an ad because they're just stuck in like a flow state when they're watching some of these videos? And is this kind of what you believe Meta is trying to accomplish here with some of these changes? A couple with good content, of course, right? Yeah. Assuming you have a really great ad. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I, I think one of the main benefits of reaching audiences when they're on social media is that they are in a discovery mindset, as opposed to when someone uses like Google search, they're in a different type of mindset. They're in an intention mindset. They're looking for something. But when they come to social media, they're open to seeing what comes across their feed. 
And I do believe that as the content becomes more mixed in someone's feed and more unpredictable, that could lend to someone being more open to discover a new business. And that's actually something that on TikTok, advertisers are seeing a lot of success and the platform is seeing a lot of success because you don't know what's going to come up on your feed. It's very unpredictable. And yet people are coming to that platform and they're leaving a lot of times discovering a new brand or product or place that they want to travel and then later on buying. Um, And there's actually been some great stats about that. So if Facebook and Instagram are taking some of those ideas and feeding it into their tech as they have been testing, I think that could definitely be very favorable. Now, the one caveat here is, would someone be more likely to engage with an ad because of this change? I think that's dependent on the creative. What we've seen traditionally is that advertisers on Facebook and Instagram, if you're like a a large advertiser, traditionally, they were just taking like their TV ads and and just bringing the 30-second TV ads and putting it on Facebook and Instagram, which is obviously not great because it's a different medium. People don't engage with the content the same way. So I think if advertisers are really building their creative from a platform first perspective, which is make your videos vertical, you know, eat up that real estate space so that people can be immersed in the video, design your video for sound off. Uh, Traditionally, most people have consumed, I think over 60% have consumed video on Facebook and Instagram with sound off. Now, this is a stat from like five, six years ago. So I, I don't know. I think that might be changing, especially with the updates to the product. But just assume someone's going to watch your video with the sound off. It's like, does the message still come across? If not, you know, use text, use visual aids to kind of get the point across. Also making sure that the video is short and like punchy and entertaining. So you want quick cuts. You don't want to be using 45 second, one minute long videos. There might be some product categories where that could work. But for the most part, I think keeping it short and sweet, like 10 to 15 seconds is an ideal time. Showing your brand cues early on. Don't wait for the last second of the video to show your logo. You might have paid to show to entertain someone for 14 seconds. And what you'll find is that they might not even remember who you are if they didn't click on the ad. Even if the intention is to get someone to the website to buy, we know that always doesn't happen on the first try. You can benefit from someone remembering your brand showcasing your brand logo or your brand cues early on, super important. And those are a few of the tips that I would say, if you're going to be using Facebook to drive sales or leads for your business, and you're going to lean into video, there's a lot of ways that you can sort of shape up your creative to to be as impactful as possible. Zarin, this has been really insightful. If people want to discover you, do you have a favorite social platform you want to send them to, a website you want to send them to, where would they go to find you? I would send them to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash market hustle, or you can just go on YouTube and type in market and health and hustle. Should come right up. There's a ton of videos there. I think we have over 160 videos published. We did a series this year on Facebook ads and everything performance. So there's a ton of great content there. Otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn. Send me an invite there. You can find me just by looking up Zarin Sidhu, Z-A-R-Y-N. Yeah, and we'll spell the last name for those that are listening, S-I-D-H-U. Zarin, thank you so much for answering all my questions. Really appreciate your insights today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 527. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. And again, this is our 10-year anniversary. I can't believe it. If you've been a long time listener to the show, would you let your friends know about it? 
I'm at Stelsner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelsner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelsner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.